When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking expanding higher education, spiking, minimum entry, and free speech. It's all coming up. So let me take a moment to inform the intolerant few that their brief period of power is in fact over. Because I have no hesitation in saying that diversity of opinion is just as important as diversity of background. The freedom to disagree is just as important as the freedom to agree. And democracy does not end at the gates of your echo chamber. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me at the start of our new season are three brilliant guests as ever to help rewind the HD policy tape and hope it doesn't get jammed in the proverbial machine along the way. Uh, in Nottingham, it's Paul Greatrix, University of Nottingham's Registrar. Paul, your highlight of the week. Uh, my highlight of the week was a, a, a blast from the past, a return to my youth as I went to see uh, Lloyd Cole playing some of his old hits and newer numbers uh, the other night. Very entertaining indeed, very nostalgic. No idea who that is. Um, and in South East London, it's Diana Beach. <laughs> in South East London, it's Diana Beach, Chief Executive of London Hire. Diana, your highlight of the week. Hi, Mark. Uh, I have no idea who that is either, so uh, sorry. Um, um, as for my highlight of the week, uh, I know this is shameless of me, but this week's actually my birthday week, and it's my first one without some form of restrictions for the past couple of years. So by the time this show goes out, I'll hopefully be celebrating up in Glasgow, where I'm going to be going to a friend's wedding anyway over the weekend. So it's celebrations all round, really, and I think some much-needed downtime this long weekend before the DfE consultation deadlines hit us all next week. Sorry to remind you all. Uh, yes, that was a bit of a rollercoaster right there sort of celebration and dfe consultation deadline yeah more on that later uh, and in exeter it's sunday blake wonky's associate editor sunday your highlight of the week well i my highlight of the week was finalizing uh the panel discussions for accessible areas which is obviously the event we have coming up on the 10th of may and it's so exciting because it, it's just going to be amazing. And I'm really excited about it because obviously we haven't had an event since Secret Life of Students. Um, but now that Diana's said, it's also my birthday uh, week. So now I'm wondering if me and Diana have the same birthday. Um, mine's on Saturday. Oh, mine's on Friday. Royal Wedding Day, 29th of April. <laughs> Happy birthday, everyone. Happy and birthday come to all. Access All Areas on the 10th of May. That's right. Absolutely right. Um, good. Now, Let's start the week with uh, the Tony Blair Institute's big report into higher education causing lots of discussion. Paul, talk us through it. So the, the Tony Blair Institute for, for Global Change. Now, I, I was just criticised a moment ago for no one knowing who uh, Lloyd Cole was. He's a contemporary of Tony Blair's, but many more people have heard of Tony Blair and have very strong opinions on him. So the, the Institute last week produced a report arguing for a, a much greater participation rate. So up to 70%. Uh, participation rate in higher education by 2040. And, um, 
harks back, of course, to the original um, uh, target, which has been uh, much commented on, of 50% going into higher education, which was uh, exceeded not that long ago. But it's become a real kind of focus for for both um, uh, opposers and those in favour of higher education, and has become somewhat uh, fetishised. But the, the report itself is very much about looking at the broader swathe of higher education qualifications uh, at level four and above, and arguing that actually what our country needs in order to ensure long-run productivity is more people going into higher education of different types to ensure that we're able uh, to get the productivity we need. And it's a it's a rational case, but unfortunately I think has been rather overshadowed by people's prejudices and interpretations of uh, what higher education participation uh, means. So there's a lot in there to chew on, Mark. Um, Diana, would I be right in saying that the government is sort of pretending to disagree with what's in the Tony Blair Institute's report. <laughs> yeah, so we're certainly in a climate of contradictions at the moment, aren't we? We've got, I'm sure we'll come on to it later as well, but as you say, we've got minimum entry requirements and student number controls being considered, but then a lifelong learning agenda, which in many ways should do what is being set out in this uh, Tony Blair Institute report. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about you or any of our, our listeners today, but I get really irked when I hear people questioning how many people should be going into higher education. Uh, and I get irked because what you're basically doing is asking how many people people shouldn't be going to university as well. It's implicit in the question. Nobody would dare ask that or indeed put a number on it. Um, so maybe that's what we should be doing instead to cut through all the noise and to you know undermine the government's argument at the moment. Because I hope everyone agree that everybody should get the chance to raise their educational attainment when, if they want it. And, and we'd be better off putting our efforts into how working out how to do this and be that by tackling low school attainment or developing more non-traditional routes. So I think that's really what the government should be focusing on. Hmm. The, the the point is that the the the, the Tony Blair Institute's report is is not the the policy of up to seventy percent by twenty forty isn't necessarily different to the government's policy. They've not set a target. They all they've said is that they don't they don't agree with the Tony Blair target. But with expanding lifelong learning opportunities, as as you're saying, you know that number could creep up. We're not talking about sending everyone to, for a full time at, at eighteen for a full time uh, undergraduate campus based degree, are we? <laughs> I think that that's exactly the the, the point, Mark. And uh, I mean, too often these things get seen through, you know, a bit of a tabloid lens, which which sees every undergraduate experience as being Oxbridge fundamentally, or you know, um, golf study. So there, you know, and that those are the only kind of. Um, things ways in which to describe an undergraduate experience it's much much broader than that as uh, as you and diana say yeah absolutely and i i, I mean i would say this i work for him i appreciate lord johnson's um, in, um forward to the report as well i think he sets that out quite nicely and i don't think you can emphasize enough what is happening in other parts of the world he, he mentioned south korea japan and canada i think as high innovation economies i mean participation rates in these countries are already between 60 and 70 percent they've already uh, made that sort of um, a milestone but they do it because they've got a broad definition of higher education and that's something that we desperately need to work towards lord johnson of course being joe johnson former universities minister right i mean sunday the debates is not surprising how toxic this debate has been is it and it seems like i mean that the tony blair institutes they, they know exactly what they're doing it's a very canny piece of uh po- policy work building on you know the the, the tony blair's original 50 percent target which is just so totemic and 
the government claim not to want to want to respect it but you know the fact is we've already reached it um and, and the other fact is it's, it's absolutely shaped the higher education system that we have today and that the investment and expansion of uh, of higher education that followed that original target what ha- has led to um many 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 more people having a of having a higher education almost can't be quantified you know the kind of in terms of productivity in terms of equality in terms of all, all sorts of all sorts of things that you know will have happened as a result of that it, it's almost hard to quantify but there is something nastier about this, isn't there? Because the the people who don't want um, the people who think fewer there should be fewer students tends they tend to be talking about other people, don't they? They don't they tend to be t- talking about their children. Yeah. No. Well. Yeah. No. That's exactly it. I was going to say it's really certain which demographics are looking down at the idea of expanding higher education. Um, I do agree with what Paul was saying. It's is that there is sometimes a deliberate misunderstanding uh, around Tony Blair's sort of original figure or even the updated figure um and i think that it's often the way that it's spoken about um so as you know paul said everyone thinks it's full-time campus-based oxbridge but not everyone who's not everyone that higher education was going to be opened up to is going to study something like romantic literature and one of the things that i always do around these conversations is take them to friends who never went to university so i I explained this to a friend of mine who is a builder and he employs, you know, young lads sort of like 18 up. Um, and his immediate response was like, well, okay, well, who's going to do, who's going to do my work if they all go to university, if all these lads start going to university and studying philosophy. And obviously that's not, that wasn't the case. And I think there's like a, I think that the, I sometimes think that there's like a lack of transparency around what, what qualifications and what skills students were being equipped with um because like you said it's not it's not oxbridge it's not golf studies there's a plethora of qualifications that can be you know be offered to students that will give them all ty- all types of skills um i do you know what i, I, I won't think... hear words said against golf studies on the wonky show <laughs> um I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I actually I had a I had a birthday party last weekend, and um, I had my friend Ben, who's who's a builder, you know, no GCSEs, anything like that, and he was talking to my friend Matt, who is he's got several degrees in construction, um, and it was so it was so interesting to see them talk to each other about the exact same sector, but coming at it from different angles, um, and. It's. I think that when when we shroud higher education in sort of elitism, we forget that actually there's a lot of people with a lot of skill and a lot of talent that could add to the conversations here that currently aren't being welcomed in. I I, I think it's absolutely right, and part of the vision for um, a productive economy has got to be ensuring that we have people who are able to to span that range of activity, right? And, uh, you know, so the, the people that your your friend Ben's employing, right, need to have the, the basic skills to enable them to start off on their uh, construction journey, but also need to have access to, you know, to uh, apprenticeships, etc., to get them on a, on, on a ladder towards a progressing further. And maybe they don't want to go further, or they do, but they need both the, the academic structure to enable that to happen but also the the financial um incentives uh, for both employers and for institutions to enable it to happen as well essentially we need to take a lot of the politics out of education to enable us to design a system which works from top to bottom from from left to right and it, it, it is too ideology you're right it's about people wanting to 
you know, pull up the drawbridge and say, no one else is allowed to study art history now because I'm happy and my children are happy. That's not on. We've got to view it through a completely different lens. But it's not even it's not even about the subject, though. Like, I know you're saying art history, but I, I find that that sort of like gatekeeping isn't around particular subjects it's around like the concept of a degree itself the idea that like well I have a degree in my specialism and you you know we're joking here about golf studies but you know there's this kind of snobbery around like well my degree singles me out above other people who don't have degrees and whatever their specialism is or whatever their labor contribution to society is there has to be something that indicates that it's lower than mine when it's not, because, you know, the way that we value labour is, you know, we, we value labour in society as the sort of like brain versus brawn, right? Like the more brain that you use, the, the, the better it is or whatever, which obviously is not the case at all. Um, but there is, I think that it comes down to this idea of like, well, I have a degree and th- their particular specialism can't possibly be quantified via degree because a degree is what makes my specialism better than theirs which is absurd i think you might be into something with the brain versus brawn thing someday i like that i was just going to say i mean what we've suffered from for too long in our sector is the division the 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 nonsensical division between technical uh vocational and academic education when you know academic is technical too and vice versa um we need to be breaking that down. I'm not saying I know an easy way how to do it, but I, th- I think you're definitely onto something. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And just on the golf thing, I grew up in a golfing village and I can absolutely endorse the need for a proper structured golf education for people at all levels of golf. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, Andy Grayson here. My piece on assessment challenges and employability comes from a career-long interest in systematic observational methods and sequential analysis. From this perspective, the predominance of static snapshot outcome measures that that strip out the dimension of time from human behaviour is a real shortcoming of psychology. And it turns out also to be a real shortcoming of traditional methods of assessing skills in higher education. This piece focuses on the question of how we should assess students on the skill of working collaboratively as part of a team. It notes the traditional tendency to focus on the outcomes of group work when it comes to this kind of assessing and makes the case for a need to focus instead on dynamic measures of process. Now there's been a new report out about spiking Sunday. Talk us through it. So, yeah, there's a new report from the House of Commons Home Affairs uh, Committee inquiry into spiking. Um, This comes off the back of sort of uh, countrywide uh, demonstrations, protests, online petitions um, to essentially get uh, the safety of of students and and other people who go into the nighttime economy um, prioritised. It is this is really relevant to higher education because um, there's a statistic that uh, says that 81% of reported spiking victims are students. Um, and plus the home office um, has been, has been asked by the committee to work with third party stakeholders, such as universities uh, alongside licensed premises, local authorities and the police to develop anti spiking strategies. Uh, the report also sets out um, a recommendation that, spiking is made a criminal offence in and of itself Uh, a lot of people sort of aren't aware that actually spiking someone is not an offence it's just any kind of lateral offences that happen around the spiking incident so like an assault or a theft Um, and then obviously the report followed with a longer term 
cool that a strategy is published uh, and used to develop national policy? I mean, I, th- I think it's a, a, a really interesting report. But uh, I mean, for me, the uh, I mean, I think the the, the proportion of reported spikings, uh, 81% being students, is just is just staggering. So it does say there's there's something very, very unusual going on in relation to uh, our student communities. And that 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 is really strange. And we need to investigate Can that I ask, further. So just on, on that point, Paul, does that ring true for your experience? I know you've, you've long tracked the essentially you know, the criminal uh, activity that happens on your campus. There's a there's a book out, book out about that, that very topic. Um, but does it does it ring true? Well, I'm, I mean, I, I think the because um, what I'm I'm not able to gauge is the 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 other non-student incidents of this kind, which which do do get reported to the police. But I, I think that there there part of the the thing is right that the work that universities and particularly students' unions do to uh, encourage people to protect themselves in all dimensions of their 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 student lives, particularly when they're you know out in a you know a potentially um, you know, slightly unsafe environment, like a, you know, a club in town kind of thing. I think that does promote the idea that reporting, you know, is an important thing to do. Lots of people clearly don't report, but perhaps more students are inclined to report because they're more aware of the issue than the wider youth population. I don't know. I'm speculating. No, no, no. I I completely agree with that because I actually think that students have more venues of support when they do find themselves in, you know, in intoxicated states. So like if you're a student, you go go back to your halls, you've got welfare officers, you've got hall staff, you've got campus medical centres who can go, something's wrong here, let's call the police. But if you're a non-student, you just go home. Do you know what I mean? And you're not going to have that support to get get your case taken to the police. So... That's, I think sense. that's an absolutely valid point. The, the other point I was going to make is that, um, I do think, uh, efforts, right? And I know there, there are, there are, you know, there are criticisms of the, the, the approach and these, but efforts which bring together universities, students union, the police, city councils, licensing authorities, and club owners and their security staff to ensure the greater safety of students when they're in what are, you know, kind of dodgy environments often. I think that those steps and those shared understandings and the uh, the wider measures of safety that can be taken, including in relation to the incidents of spiking, I think is a positive thing. And I think they should be happening all the time anyway, regardless of a particular issue and focus on spiking. This is one of the things that frustrates me so, so much with um, the whole kind of spiking, like is someone spiked or have they been drunk like rhetoric is the idea that if, if a student has been spiked, then they deserve health care and they deserve being looked after. But if they're just drunk, then they don't and that they're just chucked out of clubs or they're sent home. It's like, no, we need to forget why someone is in the state that they're in and we need to support them and help them. Um, and it just it just really frustrates me that there's this kind of like delinear like this. What word am I looking for? There's like a divide between what person deserves help and what doesn't. It's like, th- and th- and then that's why there's so much onus on like people having to prove that they've been spiked, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, and why I- does someone have to prove it? And that, that you're depending on a split second judgment by a, a member of door staff about whether someone, you know, it's been spiked, they're drunk, they're ill, they might be having some kind of other physical uh, symptoms relating to a, a long term illness, etc, etc. And also that points to the need for proper training for security staff, which uh, plays into the point we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to chip in here. Um, I think uh, there's something to be said for that joined up approach, because it- 
we've been tracking this issue from a London perspective, if it helps to give sort of a regional dimension. And um, I was shocked when I saw a survey by the TAB, I think it was in October last year, saying that 43% of London students surveyed by them um, said they've either been spiked themselves or know someone who has. And on the back of that, I know the Mayor of London then urged women in the capital to report any incidences of spiking that they may have been victim to or seen someone be victim to by either needle or drink. And I don't know where that's got to, but what I do know is that certainly last month the Mayor of London has made it one of his priorities in a campaign um, aimed at tackling violence against women um, and all associated um, incidences and this could sort of fall into that. So I do think we now have an opportunity um, at that regional level to elevate this issue and to sort of force that join up. I completely agree with you. I do think that um, we need to be really careful when we're looking at self-reported incidences. And that's not to say that I don't believe that someone wasn't concerned about their own well-being. But a lot of the uh, symptoms of spiking are the exact same symptoms as panic attack. So sweaty palms, raised heartbeat, feeling a bit dizzy and disorientated. And I think that there is a there is a lot going on at the moment with people talking about spiking. So like... Yeah, as as a as a relatively young person, like I've gone out before, and someone said to me, "Or oh, Sunday, I think I think you got spiked at your birthday," and I'm like, "Well, actually, I didn't, but I'm eight stone eleven, and every single person decided to buy me a drink, <laughs> and I I got a bit worse for wear." But obviously, if someone comes up to you and says, "You know, you, you're a bit you're a bit wobbly," I think you've been spiked, and you know that spiking is being talked about a lot, and that everyone's saying it's happening. If someone said that to me on that night, I'd immediately start panicking, you know. And one of the great recommendations, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying it because I think it's a horrendous and terrifying thing to imagine coming to terms with the fact that someone's deliberately tried to harm you. It's horrific. But that's exactly why I don't think we should be putting the idea into people's heads unless we, should, we can prove it. And there is a recommendation into the report that people who think they've been spiked should be able to access quality healthcare, uh, responsible policing and rapid forensic testing. And that is 100% the right decision, not because I think everyone's being spiked, because one, I think healthcare approach is the right one, whether someone has or hasn't, you know, they're frightened and they need help. But two, if we actually start testing student union, uh, sorry, (laughs) two, if we actually start testing students, and I know some student unions have started doing this, um, we might actually be able to get a clear picture of what's happening, but also reassure some students. So Surrey, they started testing students and they found out of 120 students who said they'd been spiked, only six tested positive. And Lincoln tested 35 students saying they'd been spiked and only one person tested positive. And again, I'm coming back to this thing of saying, I'm not saying that I'm not believing people when they say that they're frightened and scared and they think that something's happening to them. Because I think if someone's coming to you saying they need help, we need to believe them. And, you know, people have good reason to believe they might be spiked because violence against women is an epi- is a you know an epidemic in this in this country but i'm saying that we really need to take a data-based approach to this um so when we start actually testing people and we see that spiking isn't happening happening as often as it is one we can reassure people but the other thing we can do is say okay so what are the reasons that you're getting into this physical state is it that you don't understand your alcohol tolerance is it that you're not eating enough is it as the report also acknowledged that your friends are giving you more alcohol than you think that they're giving you because, you know, they're sort of just eyeballing what they think is a shot in a kitchen somewhere and not using a professional optic and giving their friend a 75 mil 
shot of vodka instead of a 25 and do you see what I'm saying like once we actually sit down and go right what is the problem it's not as big as we think it is but that's not to say that there aren't problems because they are but we just need to find out exactly what they are now all this season we're working with the association of university administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hard-working HE professionals from around the country and this week we caught up with Malazri Home and Freya douglas Oloyedi, who are working to tackle gender disability and ethnic pay gaps at Newcastle University Hi, welcome to The Wonky Show. Can you each introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Freya douglas Olietti. I'm an Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Advisor at Newcastle University. I've been working on EDI in the HE sector since 2010. Um, so lots of experience in this area, um, both at the Equality Challenge Unit and then later at Newcastle University. Hi, I'm Malastri Holm and I'm the Race Equality and Accreditation Advisor at Newcastle University. I lead on work around the Race Equality Charter and join up the Race Equity Agenda and community work as well. So why is Pay Gap such a focus for you at Newcastle? It's such a focus for us because we've really set it as an institutional priority. You know, this is one of our three top key commitments in our University Athena Swan action plan, which is basically our gender equality plan. And while we've made some progress in reducing the gap since 2017, we absolutely accept it's not, it's still too high. And that's why it's a really important focus for us. The other thing I'd say is that it's not just the gender pay gap that's important to us, but also ethnicity pay gaps and disability pay gaps are really important. We don't want any gaps relating to any equality group. Um, uh, and so that's why we've taken that approach at Newcastle to look beyond gender. And of all the things you've done uh, working on pay gaps, what's, what, is, what do you feel has been the most effective thing? Uh, so I think from my perspective, the most effective thing that has happened has been going first beyond a rudimentary analysis by ethnicity to look at groupings and subgroupings. So, for example, looking at early career researchers on contracts and professors separately, in addition to considering academic colleagues. And then it was to build in an intersectional approach where possible. So, for example, looking at gender and ethnicity both within these groupings. And what's been the biggest challenge? I think the biggest challenge with the gender pay gap and other pay gaps is that the causes of them are structural, systemic, uh, historic, ingrained. So you can't change them overnight. So mostly we're talking about making small incremental changes that over time lead to more equitable outcomes. So that's a challenge because we all want to make dramatic changes as soon as we can, of course. So it's that maintaining momentum and commitment to this that's really key um, and focusing efforts on this for a longer period of time in order to see results. And thinking about that then, what's your absolute one best top tip for other colleagues across the sector working on this topic? I would say it's really three things rolled into one rather than one tip. So it's know your data because there will be gaps. Know your organisation because that is important to build a sense of belonging. And finally, build intersectionality wherever possible. Thank you so much. The Institute of Fiscal Studies is weighing back into the higher education policy debate with a report into minimum entry requirements. Paul? Run us through this. So the the IFS have done a, a really um, as a brief, interesting, punchy report on minimum eligibility requirements. What this is all about is saying that um, uh, 
students wishing to enter higher education cannot access a student loan system unless they meet certain minimum entry requirements. This is a, uh, the latest wheeze from government. And the idea is that you would not be eligible for a loan unless you had got the equivalent of uh, uh, an old C grade in GCSE, English and Maths, or grade four um, in contemporary uh, currency. Um, and the reasons for this are twofold. One is um, it's an attempt to somehow limit the exposure of the Treasury to the, the student loan book, so restricting access to loans. And the other thing is it's a you know it's another um, crude, you could argue crude ideological attack um, on higher education and our ability to admit people that we think have got the potential to progress and to complete their degrees. Um, so it's a, a different constraint on the institutions in terms of uh, who they admit. The challenge, the wider challenge of it is, is it would have a disproportionate impact on those already underrepresented in higher education it would lead to further skill shortages of the kind we've already described um, but it runs entirely counter to the other regulatory uh, strand uh, government is interested in which is access and participation which the office for students is currently uh, pushing very hard so it causes a whole bunch of problems yeah i'm just going to jump straight in because this is very much my topic of the month um, obviously we're working on this in advance of the he reform consultation deadline next week um and it really, you know, what the IFS has found really chimes with what we're seeing in London. So we've been working with the GLA to collect data. And uh, just to give a regional nuance on this, we're actually seeing that almost half of free school meal eligible pupils would be excluded if minimum entry eligibility requirements, sorry, are to be set at the GCSE level. Uh, 40% of black London pupils and a staggering 86% of pupils with special educational needs. So really, I can't emphasise enough. There's a, there's a clear disproportionate impact for certain student groups. And that is certainly what we will be pushing in our consultation response. And I'm sure that's just mirrors what's going on elsewhere in the sector as well. And of course, none of that is considering the disruption that COVID has brought to pupils' lives over the past couple of years as well. I mean, time will tell what the impact of COVID will be on the educational journey of, you know, primary school kids today who want to go to university. If we, if we bring minimum eligibility requirements back at GCSE or A-levels, that set to lock out generations of students who could have the potential to benefit from tertiary education, not even higher education, and succeed. Yeah. Isn't this the idea, though? I mean, just genuinely, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask this question in good faith. Does the government want to just reduce the amount of people going to higher education for, for cost reasons? Is that, you know, is, is, is kind of, you got that on one hand? Or is it that they, um, they, they actually want to kind of engineer um society in a, in a way it skews it in this kind of grossly unequal way as the IFS points out it's a bit well, of a leading question I, I mean I'll go first I certainly hope it's not the latter I hope you know no one can play god with people's futures I mean even with the best intentions in the world we cannot predict the skills that are needed of tomorrow and the way the world of work will go I mean we would have predicted covid coming if, we, if we'd known that um so I mean I do think that the the immediate pressure at the moment is the RAB charge, um, looking at the treasury books, looking at the RAB charge going up, the amount of taxpayer money that's subsidising education. That will be setting alarm bells going, particularly in a time of increasing financial pressures. We're seeing rising inflation. Um, COVID cost a lot of money to the treasury. Uh, the treasury is going to be looking to wait ways to pull back costs. But really, we need to detach the immediate um, goal from the long-term goal. I mean, yeah, we can fix that now, but what's that going to do to our future economy? Um, probably governments don't care because they work so <laughs> short-term, more short-term than ever, I think, at the moment. Um, you know, that's a problem for the next government, but it really shouldn't. 
I think I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the the, the future funding of um, further and higher education was all meant to be resolved by Augur. It wasn't, and it hasn't been, and it isn't going to be. Um, we do need a longer term solution for all of our education, uh, particularly post compulsory education uh, system. But what the, the the consequence of this is all about, as as it's all about short termism. Um, it's all about trying to 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 stop a particular problem with the size of the and growth of the the, the loan book. And I, I'm afraid I do think that there are people who are you know quite happy with you know reintroducing barriers um, uh, to prevent people uh, from certain backgrounds entering uh, higher education because it's, you know, perceived as not for them. Um, and I, I think this is a, you know, a, a really unfortunate and really wildly inappropriate way of, of doing just that. And just, you know, just so there will be a part of the population it's completely unconcerned about this, right, because it won't affect them or their children or their children's children, right? It won't um, because they know that they're going to get their GCSEs, they know they're going to get their A-levels, and they're going to be able to go to uh, their choice of university or at least one of them. And that's just grand. But there are a large part of the population who aspire to progress to education for whom this is going to be an yet another barrier in a, an already very, very challenging environment. And that's not what this this country needs or, or wants. We've got to give people the opportunity to progress. What one, one point that uh, I, I was sort of thinking of this morning when I was reading this report was that this has a real potential to have almost like a vicious cycle knock-on effect so when you look at so obviously you know they're talking about the impact that this could have on well first of all I, I don't like the, def- the definition of um like low value degrees there's a whole other conversation to have there but you know dk uh, was making a really good point on the site about how there's certain subjects that this is going to impact more than others and one of them is nursing and the other one is social care and I was thinking this morning that, you know, uh, students who've had, uh, so, so <laughs> students in social care can also, uh, like a lot of them have, co- have come from a background where they've had interactions with social care. So if you limit the number of students from social care who can study social care, you're going to limit the number of social workers we have <laughs> in a couple of years, which means that the care system is going to be in an even worse state than it is, which means that even fewer care leavers or care experienced students are going to get to university because they're not getting the interventions that they need and what you're going to end up with is almost a whole subsection of society that is just completely blocked from social mobility progression further education uh because you're you're taking away the labor force from that area um and then obviously dk also mentioned nurses and it blows my mind like it just it's just unfathomable that we can be coming out of a pandemic and we have a government looking at demographics that make up a certain medical degree (laughs) and saying actually we don't want you to study that absolutely great point Sunday and that's why I want to say for anybody listening to this show before the 6th of May uh, please use the opportunity that we've got in the HE consultation HE reform consultation to pull out these inconsistencies because I know from my time in Whitehall and I said it yesterday at the happy conference as well that government departments don't speak to each other and we need to be pulling out those inconsistencies If, if something is going to affect a government ambition in another area or another department then we need to be telling them and then Paul you've just mentioned how this contradicts A&P agenda Sunday you've just mentioned how this sort of contradicts our ambition to build up you know our healthcare and social uh, care base we need to be uh, emphasizing that so please please wherever you are put in those consultation responses
Yeah, there's also uh, just say the other, other other issues on the table. There were student number controls, the foundation years, um, and and uh, other things as well. So yeah, get your get your consultation in, your, your response in, add your voice to uh, the weight of people saying what a bad idea this is, <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and and sadly watch it be ignored by uh, ministers. <laughs> Who should go to university, and why? What is social mobility these days anyway? And are we heading for a more joined-up tertiary education system in England and across the UK? Join us in May for Access All Areas, a wonky event where we'll assess the current access and participation landscape and consider what we need to change in terms of outreach, information, advice and guidance, partnerships and pathways between providers and on-course student support to sustain and grow education opportunity in the years ahead. We'll bring together policymakers and practitioners to work through the challenges including the new RFS Director for Fair Access and Participation, John Blake, and identify the things that will make the most difference to future students' ability to get in and get on. That's Access All Areas, Tuesday the 10th of May in London. Find out more at wonky.com slash events. See you there. So the uh, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill is back, back in action. Diana, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, so this is a gift that just keeps on giving, really, isn't it? Uh, as you said, the free speech bill is back. Um, but I suppose it technically never went away. Um, it's just that it never got very far in its passage through Parliament over the past year. So I guess uh, many of us were starting to ponder whether it would get timed out at the end of this parliamentary session or not. But alas, it hasn't. Um, earlier this week, a carryover motion was approved uh, without division, which basically means that the free speech bill lives to see another day. Hurrah! Um, so uh, to mark the occasion, the university's minister, Michelle Donnellan, gave a speech at the policy exchange think tank the very next day, uh, in which I think she quite menacingly warned vice chancellors to ensure that they don't end up on the wrong side of history. Um, And I know that the minister said that for her, it's all about creating a culture change that will reverberate through the sector. But um, after that speech, um, I can't help but think that the only thing that's reverberating through the sector right now is quite a lot of confusion, actually, about what this bill is actually going to change in practice and um, why we need it on top of the existing legislation that's out there. So vice-chancellors, university staff and students should not be on the wrong side of history here. I say to them, Do not allow the history books to record your name as part of the small cabal of the intolerant. Look ahead and be part of a freer, fairer and more tolerant future. We've done our best to take this piece of legislation and uh, in good faith and look at what it's trying to achieve. Um, And the more I read uh, Michelle Donnellan, the more I listen to her talk, uh, she's got another article in Conservative Home out this week, uh, the more confused I am about what it is they're actually looking to do and it just seems like an absolute mess (laughs) it's more than a mess i mean i'm going to be quite controversial but say i find it quite odd that if a university's minister wants to be known for pushing a big ticket policy item through that they'd even think about choosing free speech because for me it shows a lack of understanding of the complexity of our sector and particularly our student body maybe sunday you want to come in on this afterwards but you know i'm fortunate in my role at london higher where i get to work with a really diverse subset of institutions in this country and for the vast majority of them free speech just isn't an issue um 
And I'd say that's largely due to the particular makeup of their student bodies. Many of them have mature students. They're busy. They're enrolled on full-time vocational courses like nursing and uh, social care that we've just spoken about. And for those students, it's difficult enough to attend an extracurricular event on campus, let alone have the energy to try and derail it. And, and, it, and when they can attend, those students want to engage in the debate. Um, they want to hear the different arguments. They want to engage with them. So I just feel the whole free speech issue is predicated on a certain, let's just say, traditionally academic academic experience of higher education, which many of uh, ministers and officials would have had themselves. Do you know what? I was going to say that exact point that that they don't realise that university culture has changed since they were like committee members of their university associ- conservative associations like they well, don't they're, they're, yeah they're, they're, they're more than that i think they're kind of re-legislating the debates they had when they, on, students, when, yeah. when they were students when they were students i had these discussions with um with 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 members of the conservative association when i was uh when i was a student and not a member of the conservative association and we and there was this constant back and forth about conservatives feeling kind of excluded from political debates and this was kind of a running theme it just and this this has been you know across every campus for for decades now it just feels like it's just, i just the other thing i just can't believe how overblown so our language i was reading michelle donlan's um article in conservative home unless we stop this intolerant illiberal minority from ruling the agenda we will end up incapable of tackling the big issues that matter as if this is a the big issue but, but and instead, it, we'll find ourselves in a never-ending culture war. The absolute well, gall yeah, of this. Yeah, a culture war that they gall. perpetuate as well. The war, this is yeah. a the, the, this piece of legislation is is there for the culture war. They're the ones fighting the culture war, right? Oh, no. And they, they, like they, I'm, you know, I'm looking for the mirror here. Yeah, there, there's a vanishingly small number of incidents, which, of course, are the ones that end up on the front page of the Daily Mail, right? Along with the, you know, the the reference to you know cancelling Harry Potter and all the rest of it, and trigger warnings on uh, Snow White or uh, Jane Austen or whatever it might be. I mean, it is just you know fluff, and it's so marginal. And you know the thousands and thousands of events happen every term in every university across the land without any trouble at all lots of controversial speakers speak people get upset about it you know for all sorts of reasons um and that's part of university life this legislation should they ever actually get it through if they can actually decide what it is they really want to do um if it ever gets to it, we'll, we'll, we'll change very, very little in reality, apart from giving, um, you know, some government charm a nice cosy retainer at the office for students as the free speech czar. But it will, it will add nothing to higher education debate. It will add nothing to the student experience. It will do nothing to make us more productive uh, as, a, as a sector. It's purely ideological. So, right, here's the thing, though. Like, it will add some level of detriment because, um, like, student unions are really underfunded like the the you know the block grants that they're given from their parent institutions barely cover like their operations right see most of the time you've got like one activities manager signing off up to 300 events a week and that goes up to a thousand in freshers week right and it they they haven't got the fun so when a society puts in a request for like a controversial speaker, right, and it's normally someone who's very niche in that particular society's interests, that one activities manager is not going to have the background training to like uh, like completely understand the implications of that person coming to speak. So what happens is they'll sign it off. They might not do the right risk assessment, whatever, stuff blows up, people are upset, all this kind of thing. The student union has to deal with it. But, I, but there is a lot of like confusion. So things like, uh, you know, a politics society 
getting double booked in a room with the cake society making that they were going to make banana bread in. And suddenly this one activities manager, because, you know, they're working for an underfunded organisation, has to postpone the po- politics event. Now, suddenly some poor president somewhere has got the free speech union in their inbox and LBC asking for an interview. And it's like, actually, the if this legislation goes through and that un- that student union is given a massive fine based on a mistake that was made because they're already underfunded and understaffed, I don't think that that union is going to then go go on to be able to put on good quality academic and political debates, right? Like it doesn't make any sense. What they should be doing is is going to vice chancellors, fund your student unions properly so they can put on actual, you know, good political discussions and, and debates and have like experts and speakers. And because that's the other thing, right? They can't afford, they can't afford good speakers with massive fees so they get these sort of kind of like political well, charlatans <laughs> we're not we're, we're, we're not, pay, not paying for them but i i mean i think your point about overburdensome regulations are absolutely absolutely right and this is not what student unions are for they are for creating an environment where students can engage with with the issues on their own terms and do so freely uh and in a secure environment and that's exactly what we want to want to do but yeah all of this just adds to a, a burden that makes it very very complex and is a, a but- gift for the lawyers and the uh, the other thing they're confused about is is the kind of the the conflation of of academic freedom and and free speech and and pushed on this this week Michelle Donald said she's she's lis- in listening mode I think she's in <laughs> but uh, it makes it you know I guess better than speaking mode I don't know but I mean they seem very very confused about this we have tried warm words we have tried appeasement but none of it has worked so under my plans universities are once again going to become fortresses of ideas that are backed by law this is a her article from her article today and conservative home it's embarrassing it's it's actually i'm embarrassed that of all the issues that our country faces this is what the government is choosing to spend its parliamentary time on on an absolute joke it's an it's actually it's i I can't take it in good faith anymore i've never seen anything like it and i just the thing that's really got my goat this morning is michelle donnan saying they're doing this to stop fighting just to stop the endless culture war when the only people fighting a culture war here are Michelle Donlan and her conservative ministers who are just obsessed with this issue because it keeps them talking about things that aren't, you know, uncomfortable, like... This is the fourth time I've said this on the podcast, right? But Michelle Donlan took time off her day to tweet that a college in Oxford took down a picture of the Queen. Like, do not tell me that she wants to stop this culture war. Like, this is... She flans the flames at every opportunity. Okay, well, we've got this bill to look forward to, uh, and we'll be following every twist and turn in the best possible faith that we can muster on wonky.com as it uh, as it continues its uh, ludicrous passage through, through Parliament. So, that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Monkey Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKG, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Paul, Diana, Sunday and everyone at Team Monkey that helps make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.